Hello, I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Political Roundtable. You can find out more about Week to Week, including how to attend a program when you're in the Bay Area, and all about our nearly 500 programs a year at CommonwealthClub.org. Today, Week to Week presents another fascinating program from the club. Welcome to the Michelle Meow Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. I'm Michelle Meow, and here are Thursdays. We do a one-hour inclusive talk with John Zipper, my co-host. And so thank you, John, for being here. It's always a pleasure to have you here. Um, our guest doesn't need much introduction, as most of you already know who she is. I mean, you know, uh, we have so much to be grateful to you for, uh, but just for formality's sake, it, our guest today is Alicia Garza, founder, one of the founders, uh, co-founders of Black Lives Matter, and does a whole lot of things like inspire all of us. So Alicia, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, I'm like, I feel like I should be like, how was the plane ride? <laughs> I got stories. You, you know, SFO. So anytime the wind blows or there's fog, they like close it down to run one way. So me and about a thousand other people were stuck at LAX, and my plane took off before everybody else's did, but it was an hour and a half delayed. Then I finally get to the airport. I have to pee really bad, but I'm like, let's just go. <laughs> and I go to get out of the little parking thing. They're all malfunctioning. So there's a line, and I'm like... At this point, we just have to <laughs> give it to God. <laughs> you know? And then God gave me the courage to share stories with everybody. Exactly. Here we are. Exactly. Here we are. That must be what's yeah. going on. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being a part of this program. I mean, you were just here a few days ago. I was on Monday. About, yeah, structural you know, racism. And so we hear a lot from you um, about a lot of things. But here in this program, for the one hour that we're going to spend with you, I'd love to kind of you know pull that into a discussion about the work that you do and LGBTQ and it's Pride Month and you know where do we go from here? Mm -hmm. um, so uh, about Pro five probably years back ago. to the airport. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly um, what's happening actually yeah. tomorrow morning. Yeah, and it almost seems like a whirlwind, if you will. Like you know we we, we had just uh, come up with the hashtag and then it became the movement and then here we are, this political moment, and, and uh, what I appreciate about the work that you're doing is you're making a lot of it very specific to what we should be doing and, and how that works out in you know, who we elect, who we vote. So let's talk about... Who? We gonna talk about elections? <laughs> uh, Y'all wanna talk about that? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where should we start? Okay, let's start. <laughs> Let's start, let's start with San Francisco. Why not? We're here in San Francisco. How many of y'all voted? Okay. Um, I realize not everyone can, so it's not a shaming thing. But you know, in California, we had one of the lowest voter turnouts um, since, I believe, 2012. Wow. And um, in San Francisco, we are still waiting to see who will become mayor. And in San Francisco, we had low turnout as well. And that's not uncommon in midterm elections, but certainly with so much at stake, um, it's not desirable. <laughs> so um, 
you know, I, I personally, I know this is like a nonprofit forum, but the election already happened, so I can say who I voted for. You can say for. whatever you want. It's your Cool. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so um, my choice for mayor was Jane Kim, um, and I really agonized over this decision for a while. Um, you all may or may not know I spent 10 years working in San Francisco, organizing in Bayview-Hunters Point, um, which is a community that is not on tourist maps in San Francisco. It's just like a gray shaded area. But I guarantee you there are um, thousands of families who live there next to the Hunters Point shipyard. Um, and it's a community that really um, represents the last bastion of black San Francisco, which when I started organizing here, we were about 8% of the population, and when I left, we were about 4%, and now I hear we're about under three. So black people are dwindling pretty quickly um, from the city that we built. And um, there was a lot of kind of back and forth during this election about um, black representation. And certainly, I was excited about the prospect of having the first black woman as mayor of San Francisco. Um, and I think London Breed is a brilliant um, black woman and she's accomplished and totally qualified. And we differ on a lot of things politically. And one of the things that I saw after Ed Lee passed away unexpectedly um, was a really disturbing series of um, assessments about London that had nothing to do with her qualifications and I think everything to do with um, racial dog whistles that talked about why she wasn't qualified for the mayor position. And there were some moves that were made uh, by members of the Board of Supervisors to block her from becoming interim mayor even though she was the board president. Um, and so I think what we saw in this last election, to be quite honest, um, is the anguish of what's left of black San Francisco, feeling like black people are locked out of opportunities in the city, which is true. Um, feeling like black people are woefully underrepresented in politics in San Francisco, which is true. Uh, Malia Cohen and, and London Breed being on the board was the most, it's the highest number of black supervisors that- it's Two? Two. Really? Wow. that has pretty much occurred in the history of this city. Wow. Um, and I, I think what we find, right, with this kind of um, displacement and really disenfranchisement from the political system is that we can be tempted, right, to um, move in ways that are symbolic but may or may not actually change the conditions of black people, and that's what I care about. And so it was hard for me because on one hand, I really wanted to see a black woman as mayor. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, having worked in Bayview Hunters Point and worked side by side with residents there for 10 years, I know that um, London didn't vote the way that I wanted her to and that community members wanted her to as it related to what's happening at the shipyard. And of course, 10 years later, um, that debate is coming back up. We're learning that um, most of the soil sampling was falsified, uh, which is a campaign that we kind of initiated, right, in 2006. Um, and we were told that we were crazy and that that would never happen in San Francisco. And of course, we're seeing all of these things unravel. So I, I say all this to say um, the big lesson here 
is that um, until we deal with the ways in which black people feel disenfranchised, we'll always be faced with these kinds of decisions where we want to see someone who looks like us and represents us, um, but we also have to have that litmus test of, you know, what is your vision for San Francisco and do we share a vision of how we get there together? So um, now we're waiting to see what happens. It's very close between Mark Leno and London Breed. Mark Leno would be the first gay mayor of San Francisco, which seems fitting given the, the um, legacy of Harvey Milk and all the work that he did here to make San Francisco a place where everyone could belong. Um, and I think we'll have to see how it plays out from here moving forward. I want to add something before we get to Dawn really quick because, you know, I too had a really hard time <laughs> figuring this one out. Mm -hmm. And uh, before you got here, you know, I mentioned to the, the group that mm -hmm. it was like the first Asian American female to lead That's San Francisco right. who is progressive mm -hmm. or the first gay mayor mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I came out in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. So the, the gay mayor thing, I mean, even members of the LGBTQ community like struggled with that. Mm -hmm. What do you think what do you think that's all about? And even for yourself, having identified as a member of the LGBTQ community, I mean, obviously, what I'm getting at is that identifying as a member of the community isn't enough. Sure. I mean, let's complicate this a little bit because <laughs> I, I also hear progressives kind of parroting what are conservative talking points around identity politics. And so let's just put this to bed. Black feminists coined the term identity politics, and it was really an intervention in our social movements to make sure that um, we understood the ways in which our experiences impacted our political analysis and our political vision. And so when we talk about identity politics in the black feminist tradition, what we're saying essentially is that any issue that you care about has to be looked at through a lens of race and class and gender and any other social position um, that is not considered dominant and that lacks power. And I think the way that people tend to use it now is um, really like a George Bush talking point, <laughs> which essentially says, um, we all bleed red, and why are we even paying attention to any of those things? In fact, if you talk about race or gender or sexuality, then you're separating yourself from, from other people, and it prevents us from forming alliances. And that just couldn't be farther from the truth. And so um, I think what we have to be careful about is um, in our quest to figure out how do we challenge the deep polarization that is happening in our country and has been present for a long time, um, not to be satisfied with symbolism only, but also to be careful not to throw out the baby with the bathwater, meaning it is so important to look at issues of housing and education and taxes through the, the, the eyes of people who are marginalized from power. And that is what identity politics are. And that is what gets us to better solutions that include everyone, understanding that um, right now in our society, the, the viewpoint and the experiences of white, cisgendered, heterosexual men is considered to be the control by which we all kind of relate and, and, and identify. And uh, so I, I think 
I understand very deeply that desire to see someone who looks like you in power. I had that moment with Obama, right? Where I was like, <laughs> he's going to be the first black president. Of course I'm voting for him, right? Um, but I think if we're to change what we want to see changed, we have to be really mindful about making sure that we're not just clear about seeing people who look like us in positions of power, but also having people who look like us who share our vision for how to get to equity in positions of power. And the temptation to vote, I would assume, it comes not from just seeing someone who looks like you, because mm -hmm. I'm assuming you were not influenced to vote for Ben, uh, what's his face? Ben Carson? Ben Carson. Nope. Yeah. Um, Thomas Sowell is probably nope. not, you know, regular dinner yeah. companion. No. Yeah. Um, but it, it does come with someone who is with you on a number of things, but then you find those things that just are not... I actually wanted to build, though, on something yeah. you said before about, uh, you know, again, on the local level, people who would be making the change you want to have made mm -hmm. and look like you. Mm -hmm. So can I give you, the, I mean, you have, the, you have the platform in a lot of places, but can I ask you here to shine the light on some of the, the up-and-coming men and women who you think are maybe future mayors and future uh, board of supervisors, presidents, and, and others who Ooh. can actually make the laws from the inside? Ooh. Okay. Yeah, I can do that. Um, well, let's start here. I mean, I, I was priced out of San Francisco a long time ago, so I can talk to you from where I live, which is Oakland. Uh, but we had some really important, yeah, we had some really important people um, running for office this cycle. And uh, to be clear, there were more women than ever in history that ran for office, which I think is dope. Uh, Pamela Price, of course, ran a really great campaign for district attorney. Um, and she did not prevail, unfortunately. Uh, but I think her vision uh, and clarity around how to transform the criminal justice system from um, vengeful to redemptive um, was inspiring and exciting. And I think it was so threatening to the status quo that we saw police unions um, dumping tons of money into the election uh, at the last minute to make sure that she wasn't elected. Uh, we have great electeds now, like Latifa Simon, who's an elected official uh, over the BART board, um, who's been doing a number of incredible initiatives around making BART a sanctuary and making sure that, um, that we're not criminalizing migrants on our transit systems. Uh, making sure that we're, that we're extending transit to communities that are locked out. Um, we've got Kat Brooks running for mayor in Oakland, which I think is a really exciting campaign. Um, so there, uh, we've got Tony Thurmond, right, who uh, I believe is moving on to the general for the uh, race for state superintendent. Um, so we've got a lot of people who I think share a vision for equity and justice, um, but we do have to do more work to really cultivate um, people who wanna step up to those leadership levels. Uh, um, and we have to be behind them, not just at election time, but we have to actually take on the mantle of helping them govern. And to your point, um, you talk a lot about allyship and <laughs> non-black folks and what they can be doing other than voting, mm -hmm. um, you know, in support of some of these individuals. And it, it's a very basic question, but what is allyship? What does it look like? And I'm, I'm sure of it 
it's almost even frustrating when somebody says, yeah, what can I do? What can I do? Yeah. (laughs) Well, I don't, I'm not in love with the allyship term because I I think it's pretty passive. So um, to me, I mean, I could say I'm an ally to um, children in Indonesia who are making clothes that I buy at Old Navy. But if I'm still buying those clothes at Old Navy, then I'm not really being an ally to those children in Indonesia who are making those clothes uh, for nothing, right? Um, So I think... What I like to talk about is co-conspirators because I I think it is more of an active representation of what it means to really stand with someone um, and to take responsibility for each other. And so I do think we need to move from theoretically, like I I think I feel your pain kind of a thing, to um, I might not feel your pain, but I understand that we have to change what's happening in society and I wanna work with you to do that. Um, that also requires, right, that as someone who um, occupies a position of power, that you're willing to relinquish that in the mm-hmm. service of um, making our world more just. With that being said, we all can be in those positions. This isn't like a black-white issue. Um, every one of us, right, occupies a number of different experiences that in some cases um, represent those who get to make decisions about how things should be, and in other cases represent the, those who are having decisions made for them, right? Um, and so I, I think all of us can practice um, being active co-conspirators. So for myself, um, I'm in the practice of being an active co-conspirator with um, my trans family uh, and also Uh, a number of other kind of ranges of experiences that aren't mine personally, um, but that I understand if if we're not in relationship to each other, then none of us are going to get the things that we need and deserve. When we first were talking about having you here on the Michelle Miao Show, uh, we were going to actually have you with Dolores Huerta. Yay! And... uh, there were, we were unable to get the schedules to work together, but when Dolores was here, I mean, obviously, fantastic. One of the things that just blew me away was <clears throat> how specific she was about when it came to doing the co-conspiracy, mm. doing the organizing, it was, though, you do this. <coughs> you go to this person, you say, I want you to hold a meeting in your house with, you know, 60 people, and we're going to do that. I mean, very, she really knew, she was not... You know, as, as oftentimes critics, and especially on, on the right, like to throw at you mm-hmm. know, liberals and, and activists and, yeah. oh, that's horrible community organizers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. She was not a pie-in-the-sky, dreamy person. Yeah. I mean, she certainly had dreams, but sure. just the specificity of it mm-hmm. was, was blew me away. Can you give us some sense of, of how you, you know, you've done this? How do you do that? How, how do you look at a community and start saying, okay how do I get people involved to do some of these things to become co-conspirators or if they're already co-conspirators to get them to do more or to connect with other co-conspirators? Yeah, that's such a good question. (laughs) So, I mean, I think there's a number of different things and I always like to tell people start where you are. Um, I think the thing that often keeps us from wanting to, not wanting to, but kind of moving into that role is that we don't know where to begin, right? And we're terrified of making a mistake. And so the first thing I would say is just know you're going to make a ton and be willing to like learn from it, forgive yourself and keep going. 
Um, and so that starts with basic things like having conversations with your family, courageous conversations with your family when you hear things that are not right. Um, and I often find that that's the hardest thing for people to do. It's really easy to confront someone you don't know, you're not in relationship to. So you hear something and you say, oh my God, that was terrible, right? Because you have no relationship to them at all and you don't really care what the outcome is. Yeah. Um, that's performative allyship, which I'm not for. Um, I think the ways that we start to break down some of these um, barriers is by having conversations with people that we're in relationship to. Hmm. Which means, um, you know, I have conversations with my family a lot about um, what does it mean when you call the police when you see black people? And what are the impacts of that, right? And are you okay with that outcome? Um, I have conversations with my family a lot about um, queer liberation, right? When um, we might be walking down the street together and uh, maybe a trans person passes us and there's a comment that's made, right? Um, I, I need to have conversations with the people I'm in relationship to and say, hey, so what's going on here, right? What's happening? Why, why is that coming up for you? And um, how do we get to a place where we can agree to let everyone live with the dignity that they deserve? Um, and then you can move that forward, right? I think things like um, the way that we vote is an is a actual uh, example of allyship and co-conspirators, right? So um, I'll give an example. With the DA's race, there were um, lots of people who said, well, I know Nancy O'Malley is really not great on criminal justice issues, but she's really strong on domestic violence issues. Mm. And I'm like... Well, they're actually interrelated, <laughs> right? And so um, we have to be really clear that um, a district attorney who will go on record opposing an in and out in Alameda, for example, because she thinks it will bring crime, which is code for black people, um, is going to act in that way when it comes to um, holding police officers accountable for the things that they do in our communities. And one of the things we know about her is that she has actually never um, prosecuted a police officer for misconduct. And she takes money from police unions and she's supposed to be holding them accountable. That's her role as a district attorney. Um, that's not an ideological thing. That's, a, that's part of the job. So things that we can do are, are to say, we're gonna put people in power that represent our values and that represent um, a change in our values and our behaviors um, so that we can start to diminish some of these inequities that exist in, in the systems that we um, live under. And then another thing that I'll just offer here is um, I do think it's really important as, as a co-conspirator to get to know experiences that are not your own. So asking more questions and making less statements is always important. Um, I can't tell you how many times people say to me like, good luck with your movement. <laughs> I'm just so proud of y'all and good luck. And I'm like, wait, so you're just gonna leave it up to black people to like figure out how we dismantle racial inequities? That's not gonna work. If it's just on black folks, right? We're not gonna, we're not gonna win because the, we're, we're not the ones who are in, in control of those systems. So we actually need people to disinvest. And so it can't be good luck with your movement. It has to be 
this is something that I'm adopting as my own and um, really working towards that. Mm -hmm. So those are three concrete things I think that can happen now. Um, let's go ahead, a great segue into talking about, you know, police brutality, accountability, and uh, moving forward and where we're at. I mean, since Trayvon Martin, we've, mm -hmm. the power of social media and everybody else being a little bit more aware and, and taping things with their phone, we've seen, sadly, many more tragic uh, murders that has happened in police custody. And one recent one since, you know, from Stockton is I can't get over uh, Stefan uh, Clark, it, right? In Sacramento, Sacramento yeah. in which um, the police officers involved were not prosecuted. And we continuously see that. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and it's so frustrating. So yep. even as a, as a co-conspirator, yep. I, I, you know, fall short of like, what's the answer to that? Although I do think that if we elected different people to like the DA's role mm -hmm. or inserting the right kind of people mm -hmm. um, in these systems that that might change. Mm -hmm. But I'd love to hear your thoughts. I mean, these are all great examples, right? I mean, we see, um, uh, the only case I can really remember um, where a police officer has been held accountable um, for committing acts of violence in our communities um, was when Johannes Measurely was convicted um, of killing Oscar Grant. And that was in 20, 2008, well, no. eight. Eight. Eight, I believe. Yeah. Um, and the reason for that, right, is that um, the law protects police officers um, and not the people that they are supposed to protect and serve. And so we have really stringent laws in many, many states that give police officers the right to kill with impunity and under the guise of police safety. And I think we have to have a real conversation about that because um, the reality is um, that there's a lot that we can be doing to ensure that police officers are safe in the course of doing their jobs, uh, but also to ensure that communities have due process and rights that are inalienable. And what we have right now is a real imbalance. And so um, I would say, you know, there's a few things that need to happen here. Uh, but one is, of course, your district attorney needs to hear from you um, mm -hmm. when they're not prosecuting these cases. They are elected officials, and you are their constituents. And most of the time, what will happen is that people will lament about how terrible it is, watch the television, or turn it off because it's so terrible. Um, but that is not taking action, right? Um, we don't actually take that next step of making sure that um, the people who have that decision-making power are hearing from us in opposition. Now, I will say, um, people who support that kind of behavior are calling in and saying, great job, right? So we need to make sure that there's that level of pressure on the other side. Uh, to be honest, though, the second thing that we need to really take into account um, is that uh, no matter how many police you put in a community, it doesn't actually make it safer. And I, I know people are like, what? Like, what are you talking about? But it's just true. Um, 
you know, communities are made unsafe for a number of different reasons, most of which has to do with instability. So when you don't have access to housing, when you don't have access to food, when you don't have access to a wage, when you don't have access to the things that you need to live with dignity, and I'm not talking about like a yacht and a mansion, I'm talking about a roof over your head and a way to get to work and money to get to work um, or a job to go to, um, then, then there are all kinds of uh, social dynamics that emerge from not having the things that you need. And you can't police that away. Um, all we can do, right, when we over-police communities is move problems from place to place, but we don't actually solve the problem. Um, and so we're in this weird conundrum where we expect police officers to be social workers and teachers and all of these things that they're not actually equipped to do. Um, and then at the same time, we um, allow for the kind of gutting of social services that can support people to be able to live well, particularly when they're in crisis. Um, so I, I think if we wanna be able to deal with the root cause of these issues, we've gotta really push to make sure our communities are being invested in, in ways that people can touch and reach. Um, and the other thing is we have to make sure to put people in positions of decision-making um, that understand what it takes to solve problems. And they're not gonna take the shortcut from A to B, which I would say is, is over-policing. Thank you, thank you so much for that. Before you got here, somebody asked me about growing up in Stockton and, yeah. and just I have my current situations that I'm in Stockton a whole lot more now and seeing that a lot of the local folks who are running for office in Stockton all stand on a platform of, we're gonna make this community safer, we're gonna throw more money, we need more cops on the streets. And, and in my mind, I'm like, why aren't we saying we need you know, we, we, more programs for the youths and, and, and things like well, that? Yeah. But even my mom, you know, where yeah. we talk about uh, the criminalization of people of color, will say it's a good thing that we'll have more police. Like it's just like this like body. It's ingrained weight. in us. Yeah. But yeah. Um, there is hope out of Stockton. Yeah. You know, Michael Tubbs, who's like the youngest mayor in I think California history, if yeah. not like the country, um, is totally brilliant and is moving this program that I think we should all be paying attention to, which is universal basic income. And that is essentially ensuring, right, that all people have access to a basic wage. Um, and I'm really inspired by the courage of his vision. Um, I know he's also looking for people to come join him to help him roll this out. And so if you, you know, are interested yourself in community organizing and, and really moving an experiment that I think could change the country, um, holler at me or holler at Mayor Tubbs. <laughs> um, but I, I think there's, um, there is real hope. I don't want to kind of uh, leave it on a note of like, <laughs> You know, everybody wants more police. I think that's true in some cases because we've been ingrained to think that police keep us safe and ultimately we wanna be safe. And so we're gonna to reach towards the things that we know. Um, but I, I think that if we really want communities that are free of crime and free of violence, then we have to get to the bottom of like, why do these things exist? And we've gotta rid ourselves of the notion that there are some people who are just intrinsically bad. Um, and that is a notion that actually informs policing, right? And the people that get seen as intrinsically bad tend to be black and brown people and people who are low income and poor. 
So we got to change that. In 1959, uh, someone gave a speech at, oh, that was actually a conversation at the Commonwealth Club, and they were talking about, they were asked about, should the party, this is 1959, right? There mm. wasn't a world of difference between the Republicans and Democrats at the time. At that time. Um, <laughs> and this person was asked, should the parties differentiate? Should one be a strictly conservative party? Should one strictly be a labor party? Mm. And uh, he said, no, this is a terrible idea. And part of the reason, one of the reasons he gave, and I'll, I'll come yeah. around to why I'm bringing this up, was that you would have policy veering wildly each time the next party got into power. Um, now, the person who said this, actually, when was asked this question and gave that answer, was Richard Nixon. <laughs> um, so it's interesting knowing what he, of course, <coughs> had done and, and would do. But I actually think that that's an interesting point, because when we're talking about you know, changing those things, it, Dealing, putting m public monies toward solving issues or at least ameliorating people's pain, mm -hmm. we, you know, we used to be able to think that, okay, well, that's a new policy that's going to last. Now we kind of have to think, oh, that's a policy that might last four years, and then that money's going to be cut. You know, maybe eight years later, it might be put back in. Um, I don't really know where the question is in this other than, is that an issue, and does that maybe make us think differently about what types of policies we can put into place? Hmm. There's a lot in that question. So let me start with the parties and then move to policy. Okay, thanks. Um, so I, I'm, I'm in a moment where I'm feeling like um, parties are becoming, I don't know if I want to use the word obsolete, but I want to say that they're becoming less salient. And so this notion, right, of kind of what was happening in the 1950s, I think is actually kind of happening right now. And it's um, creating a deep level of cynicism and disconnection um, from regular people to government and governing. And that is a huge problem for us because um, with all of the flaws in our democratic system, and there are many, um, when people choose not to participate, um, it actually makes the system um, untenable. And it allows for the consolidation of power um, in ways that don't, aren't likely to trend towards um, getting people the things they need. So, um, with that being said, I want to be very careful not to also like feed into this narrative of like if you don't participate, then you don't matter. Because I don't. There's a lot of reasons people don't participate, and part of the reason people don't participate is because they don't think it will matter. Um, and there's good reason for people to feel that way and to think that. Um, and at the same time, I think this is a moment for us to try and move through that level of cynicism because um, no policy will be changed by people not jumping in to fight for what we deserve, period. And um, I'm somebody who believes that um, you know, voting and participating electorally is one tool of many that we must use for societal transformation. Um, and I think there's room right now to start to reimagine what can a new democracy look like that actually appeals to people's heart and soul. 
right? Like, I need to make this decision because it impacts me and the people I care about. Um, and we are not there. And I was telling a friend yesterday as we were doing the kind of autopsy of the California primaries. <laughs> um, you know, first of all, I was looking at the map of California and I was like, huh, it's all red. And then there's blue along the coast. And then there's a little pocket of blue near the border, near the Nevada border. Um, but it's all red. Mm -hmm. And this is the fifth largest economy in the country. And there's so much at stake. So I was looking at that thing and I was like, huh, this is fascinating. And then I was saying to her, um, if turnout stays the way that it is now, we will absolutely have another term of the Trump administration, mm -hmm. period. So it is possible to be under this administration for eight years. So a lot of us are like decrying how terrible it is, but also um, that's not enough. Like when you look at the fact that turnout was like at 22% in the fifth largest economy in the country, um, what that means, right, is that we are allowing for there to be space um, for um, values that actually the majority of the country does not share. Mm -hmm. um, and that is a big problem. So I would say um, I'm really not faithful about the parties getting clearer about what they're for because I think it's a lot of mismatch, mostly because I think Democrats cater mostly to the center um, and are kind of going after this mythical white working class voter that's been ignored forever. Um, the reality is I think, uh, um, Demographically, right? And Steve Phillips talks about this in his book, Brown is the New White, or yeah, Brown is the New White, um, that the demographic changes in this country mean that people of color can form a majority um, and that that majority can actually move a series of values um, that most of us believe in. Mm -hmm. um, but without folks being organized, right, we're not going to get there. And in fact, we will be subject to the tyranny of the minority, which is um, not what we want. Uh, so I think that's that. That's parties. Um, policy, I think, um, has to be looked at in relationship to culture. And so I think what ends up happening is not so much that you have a swing in um, uh, policies, but you, you certainly, if you don't have the um, grounding of behaviors that represent and reflect the values inside of policy, policy becomes hollow. Okay, so um, we can have laws on the books that say uh, that we're going to decriminalize marijuana. But if the culture says, right, that um, we're against that and that actually, um, that, that that drugs, right, are predominantly a problem for people of color communities, then those policies aren't gonna be enforced, right? Policies decriminalizing marijuana are not gonna be enforced in the ways that we want. 
Um, so I think policy has to be linked with culture all the time. And our strategies to try and um, build better policies have to be linked to a strategy around changing hearts and minds and winning hearts and minds so that um, we're really invested in the rules that we make about how we be and who we be together. Masterpiece cake show. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to ask one more question and then I want the audience to be able to ask you questions. You know, uh, and that has to do with because it's Pride Month and LGBTQ. And, yes. and, and like, I, I just have this question, like, where is the LGBTQ movement in all of this? Uh, which there is there there's some stuff going on but you know you've got Emma Gonzalez who's heading the anti um gun violence you know issue who identifies uh, as a part of the community and but that's very specific to yeah. to the gun violence right where where's where are the lgbtq leaders in all of this we're everywhere exactly um uh, well look i mean I, we just saw the supreme court in this ruling which Y'all know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Ruling and the baker and the religious freedom. I, my, my religion tells me I should not bake a cake for a gay couple, even though that's my business. <laughs> that's how I make my money, but God I'm is not going to do it for you. Um, I don't know that God. <laughs> um, I, I, I think that we are in a moment where everyone gets to choose which side of history you're going to be on. And the reality is... Um, Lesbian and gay and bisexual and transgender people um, have been at the forefront of movements, social movements and social change forever. Mm -hmm. um, and part of the challenge I think we're facing is a cultural challenge where um, the way that we begin to understand how we got here gets incredibly sanitized and boiled down to the things that nobody cares about. Right, so um, just to be super clear, I mean, pride, right, has become this representation of um, rainbows. Like I was taking a ride share the other day and the little map, the route was rainbow. And I was like, this is cute. <laughs> but um, pride was actually a rebellion, mm -hmm. right? And now it's become um, a very sanitized corporate party. And there's room for all of that, right? It's not to say we shouldn't celebrate how far we've come, but it is to say that we should be very clear um, that uh, of, of where we came from and how we got here. And there is a, um, a reason that we get to that level of, of, of sanitation, right? And the reason is it is better right, to um, have people be less militant in our pursuit of rights and equity um, than it is to um, just acknowledge, right, that um, we're a little better off than we might have been. Mm -hmm. So um, in this month, I'm thinking a lot about Marsha P. Johnson, and I'm thinking a lot about Miss Major, and I'm thinking a lot about Stonewall, and, and just remembering that um, the, the struggle for rights and dignity for lesbians and gay and bisexual and transgender people, queer questioning, the whole rainbow, right, um, was never about marriage equality. Mm -hmm. It was about equality. Right, um, this, just like the struggle for um, 
black rights and dignity was never about voting. It was about being able to make decisions over our own lives. It was never about um, uh, just about Jim Crow, right? It was about being able to have access to the things that we need to live well. And so once we start to really get into um, what it is that we're actually fighting for, um, I think we start to see more of where our people are mm. and um, we make more room for that. Right. So um, when I think about marriage equality, what I know is that uh, even though that fight seems like it was like a five year period, five to eight year, um, it was actually like 30 or 40 years. Right. To to the point where people could even publicly identify as LGBT, um, share public accommodations, right? Um, be able to have the right to be witnessed in your love, right? Like there's steps and levels to these things. Um, civil rights didn't come in a summer, right? It came over 40 years and we still are actually walking backwards from a lot of the things that we've won. So I, I think that where we are, um, is at a point where it's incumbent upon us to begin to challenge the sterilized notions of um, freedom and justice, right? So I'll just give a quick example and then I'll move on. No. no. Uh, <laughs> so this year, <laughs> I'm just going to say this because I don't care. Uh, this year for Black History Month, we got approached by Walmart um, to do a commercial for Walmart. And I was like, we can't do a commercial for Walmart, especially when black and brown people are fighting to form unions in Walmart and are being terrorized by that company, right? Especially when, right, um, um, Walmart <clears throat> is a backer of some of the policies that are killing black and brown people. So no, on Black History Month, we're not gonna do a Walmart commercial because, um, Walmart is not a company that shares our values. We could have done that though. And you could have seen black people being like celebrating Walmart, celebrating Black History Month and thinking to yourself, wow, we really made it, <laughs> right? So we have a lot of work to do to maintain the integrity of um, the many people before us who have fought for us to be able to like have these kinds of dialogues together, but also, um, bring that integrity forward to inform our vision of what's possible for us. And um, I think that, you know, one of my roles as I see it is to actually make space for um, the people that don't really get seen in this movement um, as being kind of heroes and sheroes and everything in between. Um, and certainly, whose demands for what society could be um, are more militant than what you probably see on television, but they're things that we all kind of need to hear so that <laughs> we can break some of this stuff open. Oh, yeah, yeah, and I'll be honest, I, I needed to hear that. Yeah. Right? Uh, being Happy part Pride. Of, yeah, San Francisco <laughs> Pride. Um, I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, you know, June 1st, the LGBTQ flag goes up on Market Street, but if you're in Union Square, um, it wasn't like I was like running through Union Square like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get my rainbow chucks and then I'm going to go get my rainbow gap t-shirt and then I'm going to go get my, you know, for me it was like, oh dear God, what did we do? Yeah. <laughs> it was a little overwhelming because yeah. then it was like, do people just kind of see this as like a holiday, you know, like Christmas uh, mm -hmm. and, and uh, so I hope to share actually some videos that we did with CBS 
um, featuring Ken Folks, Jill Gomez, yes. Aria Saeed, yes. Billy Curtis. Yeah. And at one point in the boardroom, we joked because uh, I said, wait, are there any white people in these videos? And it was almost a moment of like, are we going to get in trouble for it? And then we all just bursted up, started laughing, and we're like, I think it's okay that um, actually we don't in any of the videos there, uh, it, besides Ali, who's Puerto Rican, who's not white. Mm. But um, so thank you for that. Mm. Uh, let's open it up to questions from the audience. Yeah, we have microphones here at the end of each aisle. If you could, yeah, if you have a question, come on up and ask. Hey. Oh, perfect. That was an hour. So I love Pride Month. Mm -hmm. Me too. I love the parties. Mm -hmm. And so I really took in what you said, and it's like, yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm in this place of reflection around a couple of things. I was talking before you came about... Mm -hmm. um, being black and being queer yeah. and being in the black spaces and yep. dealing with the queer issues and yep. being in the queer issues and, and dealing, dealing with, with racism. The, yes, yes. And I'm on the board of the Rainbow Honor Walk, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. a nonprofit that embeds bronze plaques mm -hmm. in the sidewalk in the Castro uh -huh. to honor our history. Mm -hmm. And I'm on the board because my white lesbian friend said, we need some chocolate chips in our cookie. Uh -uh. <laughs> I, I, I pitched Bayard Rustin as someone who should have a plaque. And yeah. she said, who's that? Wow. And so we got to have a conversation. And on the board, there are lots of people, Quentin Crisp and other people that I'm learning about that yeah. I didn't know yeah. existed. So I feel like this is really honorable work. Mm. Um immortalizing our history. Mm -hmm. But you, you took me down a different road today with your thoughts. Mm -hmm. So my question's a little different than what I thought it would be. Uh -huh. My question is, as I try to stand on the right side of history yeah. and contribute to this organization that makes me feel like I'm doing really good work, yeah. who are some of the people? Yeah that I should be sharing yes. with the organization, with the world, through what I feel is really important work. Oh, yeah. Because I hearken back to first coming here and the Lesbian Avengers yep. and ACT UP and, and the rebellion. Yeah. And so in this, this, this era of Trump, like we're we're really uncomfortable mm -hmm. on the board, and I want to contribute mm -hmm. to the best of my ability. And so, mm -hmm. while I have your brains, mm -hmm. all three of you, and the the collective <coughs> hive here, mm -hmm. I, I'd love some thoughts on that. Yes. Okay, you ready for the list? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, we have time for this. I got a list. Yeah. yeah. Um. Okay. <laughs> well, I'll wait. I'll wait. Um. Well, thank you first for, for offering that. And um, memory is so important. It's so important. Um, and I think actually that amnesia is what allows trauma to like stay so present. 
Mm. You know, so um, thank you for that. And I, I'm not sure if this is the same organization, but I, I have that experience when I walk through the Fillmore and I see the plaques of people who helped build that community. And um, it is a visceral experience. So um, thank you for doing that work. Uh, so, I mean, where should we go? Polly Murray, mm -hmm. Audrey Lord, June Jordan, Jazzy Collins, who was a um, local trans activist, uh, trans woman activist who was very active around housing and homelessness. Um, we could go to, man, there's so many people. Um, can you do living people too? Out queer dead. Okay, well, I'm still on that track. Cool. <laughs> um, you could do Marsha P. Johnson. Um, man, I wish you had living people. I'm like, <laughs> folks. Right. Um, you could do James Baldwin. Um, you could do, I mean, there's like a list. Um, but I think actually if you start with those, um, then you'll start to see kind of who were people in relationship to. And that's just a list of black folks. So, you know, I would say, let's get the audience involved here. But I think that will help to kick off uh, an exploration that I think you'll find um, not only heartwarming, but it will expand um, your mind about kind of what is our history here and um, what could it be? Thanks for that. Is it just the board that makes the decision on the plaques or can the public rec make recommendations, contribute? Okay. Yeah, that's fun. Oh, yeah. Question for Alicia? While we're waiting for another question, obviously, come right up to a microphone. Um, I'm going to jump in. Uh, you were working with, for Stacey Abrams, am I correct? <laughs> She's actually going to be here in a few weeks. Sold out program. <gasps> She's um, so cool. Yeah. I, I, tell us more about her. Did you get to work with her? Stacey Abrams is everything. Um, yeah, I mean, I was honored to help support her um, campaign for governor. Um, she will be the first black woman to be a governor ever in the history of this country, um, and certainly ever in the history of Georgia. Um, and that is exciting to me, but per our earlier conversation, not enough. Um, she is excellent politically and um, knows what it takes to transform the economy so that nobody is left behind. Um, so in particular, I'm really passionate about her um, stance on caregiving. Uh, as I work with domestic workers and people who work in other people's homes and care for other people um, who are basically locked out of most labor protections federally and often at the state level. Um, so that's important to me. She has a really incredible vision around um, dismantling uh, mass incarceration. And Georgia is one of those states, you know what I'm saying, that um, really likes to put black people in cages. Um, she also is really passionate about empowering black communities to be powerful politically. And she um, started a nonprofit that you know registered hundreds of thousands of black people to vote. 
and she does a lot of really important work to make sure that black people feel like we're a part of the political process. Um, so she's excellent and brilliant. And um, if you can, you should come see her because um, she will run you down from tax policy to romance novels. I bet you didn't know mm -hmm. that she um, writes romance novels, <laughs> um, uh, novels under a pen name and is like really well loved in the romance novel community. Oh, that's so awesome. that's it's a pretty awesome. cool fun fact about her. Um, also really exciting is, um, um, well, there's been a lot of transformations. Over the last couple of days, we learned that uh, Keith Ellison out of Minnesota is stepping down from his congressional position and he's gonna run for attorney general in Minnesota and who's stepping up to take his place is Ilhan Omar, and she would be the first Somali-American woman to serve wow. in the U.S. Congress. Yeah. She right now is the first Somali-American woman to serve in the Minnesota State Congress. So, y'all, I'm so like excited. I yeah. was like, I've been blessed today. <laughs> um, and she's fantastic on everything. Um, so that's somebody else that you might wanna consider um, bringing here. That's awesome. For people to get to know, she's fantastic. Great. Any other questions before I get to ask the very last one? A drum roll. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I could see it percolating. <laughs> I did. I saw it. I was like, I was like, oh, I hope it comes. I hope it comes. Um, thank you, guys. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you had mentioned something that kind of sparked me when you said the phrase, um, a new democracy. Mm. So I was thinking when you were talking also about the state of California, yeah. all this red, and then there's these little blue yeah. spaces. Who, who addresses the red? How do you get the red to say, we need a new democracy? Mm. You know, this is, you know, it's not fair. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work for everyone. Mm -hmm. is, are there any groups, anybody, anywhere? you know, that tries to assist the red? Hmm. That's my question. That's a great question. It's so compassionate. Assist. Uh, we have to assist the red. Yeah. <laughs> Let's take this one, too, because I, I want to spend some time on that, but I don't want to miss this. Hi. Hello. Hi. Thanks for coming. I saw Hi. your show here um, on Monday with oh, KQED. Um, my, my question is for you. Uh, we all know how uh, hyper-polarized the LGBTQ community can be. Mm. Um, we can take it a step further and say the same thing about uh, the QPOC mm. community. Um, yeah. Being a being a light skinned Latino, mm. I've, I've faced a lot of you know uh, adversity within the QPOC community, and I just mm. you know want to know what you know. Is there anything I should read or tell them to read? Or I mean, how do you mm. how would somebody like me address that? Mm. Woo. When you're not too you know. <laughs> Yeah. You're not white, but you're not brown enough and yeah. all that stuff. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, I'm going to take both those together because these are important questions. So who addresses the red? Well, there's been this very successful movement over the last 35, 40 years that has been addressing the red it is the right-wing conservative movement in this country. And I would say that um, they have been really successful in talking with people who also feel left out. And they have given language to why you feel left out 
and what you can do about it and what it will accomplish. Yeah. So I say all that to say um, most of us feel like we're left out in some way, shape, or form, whether it's whatever I do is not gonna matter or whether it's, you know, none of these politicians ever talk about anything that's related to my life, right? And I think that's why we are where we are, is that um, our representation, our, like, our systems of representation um, are really working well. <laughs> really are working well? They're working.